This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can follow Berkeley Talks wherever you listen to your podcasts. New episodes come out every other Friday. Also, we have another podcast, Berkeley Voices, that shares stories of people at UC Berkeley and the work that they do on and off campus. Good afternoon. My name is Jeff Pennington. I am the Executive Director of the Institute of Slavic, East European, and Eurasian Studies here at the University of California, Berkeley. And it is my pleasure to welcome you today to our panel discussion on Rebuilding Ukraine, Principle and Policies. Our panelists today include four renowned leaders in the field of economics. Professor Barry Eichengreen, the George C. Pardee and Helen N. Pardee Professor of Economics and Political Science. Professor Gerard Roland, the E. Morris Cox Professor of Economics and Professor of Political Science. Um, at the very end there, um, uh, we have Professor Yuri Goranichenko, the Quantet Presidential Professor of Economics. And joining us from Chicago is Professor Roger Meyerson, the David L. Pearson Distinguished Service Professor of Global Conflict Studies in the Harris School of Public Policy and the Griffin Department of Economics at the University of Chicago, and recipient of the 2007 Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences. Our panelists will draw on their vast experience and expertise to summarize trends in the region prior to the war between Russia and Ukraine, to assess war damage, and to propose paths forward laying the groundwork for future recovery efforts and increasing the chances of post-war success in revitalizing Ukraine. Lastly, I would like to thank our hosts today, the Social Science Matrix, for use of their space. So without further ado, I'll turn the floor over to Professor Barry Eichengreen. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I must start by uh, uh, apologizing to you and my fellow panelists. I am undergressed by the standards of this panel, and I have to leave at 425, so if I duck out five minutes early, you will forgive me. Um, we're, um, among other things, summarizing some contributions uh, to a, a volume on Ukrainian reconstruction that Yuri helped uh, organize some months back. My uh, contribution to that volume was written together with Vlad Rashkovan, who is Ukraine's man at the International Monetary Fund. And it's on how to organize foreign aid for Ukraine. I was just teaching about the Marshall Plan to uh, an undergraduate class literally an hour ago. So that makes an interesting pairing with this uh, presentation. I would argue that um, Ukrainian reconstruction is a much more complicated endeavor than was the Marshall Plan after World War II, when there was uh, only one donor. And there was a problem of, of coordinating the aid recipients, but the money all came from the United States. And the state and treasury departments didn't face the task uh, uh, of coordinating with other donors. So given that there are going to be many donors whose contributions take different forms, uh, uh, that will finance different aspects of the economy's reconstruction. How uh, should this aid be uh, organized? Uh, Vlad and I, in, in uh, the volume, recommended creating a European Commission coordinated agency for the reconstruction of, uh, of Ukraine. And we argued that um, 
putting the European Commission in this coordination chair made sense uh, because EU membership is the economic and political endgame for Ukraine, as both Ukrainian and, and EU leaders uh, remind us regularly. And, and the reconstruction has to proceed in a manner that's consistent with EU norms and EU law. Um, so we recommended that the agency should be headquartered in Ukraine, which would be conducive to deep Ukrainian in, in involvement in designing the reconstruction process, Ukrainian ownership of that process, and, and, and so forth. It, it could have a, a managing director uh, experienced in dealing with the European Commission who had worked in, 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 in Brussels for many years, but it uh, it, it should be should have, should be headquartered in Ukraine. It should have a management uh, team consisting uh, not only of people from the EU, from other non-EU G7 countries, but also Ukraine itself, uh, so as to avoid the impression that Ukrainian reconstruction was exclusively a European endeavor. It could have a supervisory board on which other donor governments multilaterals like the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the IMF, the World Bank, similarly set, sat NGOs of various sites, types could be uh, represented. So two weeks ago, there wasn't an, uh, an announcement. There, there had been another proposal for how to organize aid for Ukraine that came from the German Marshall Fund for the United States an organization, an NGO, German-funded, operating out of Washington, D.C., that was kind of a thank you to the United States for the Marshall Plan. They had a, a, a different idea that this entity should be headquartered in Brussels rather than in Ukraine, uh, that the group of seven advanced industrial countries should be in charge and not the European Union. And what we got out, I think, was kind of a hybrid in the announcement two weeks ago with elements of both. So what was, was announced by the principal stakeholders a couple of weeks ago was that the G7 should be in charge of recovery planning. Uh, we, we recommended a high European commission, European official should be in charge. The German Marshall Fund recommended uh, a prominent American should be in charge. And what we got was uh, a triumvirate, a steering committee with uh, an American national security advisor, the Ukrainian finance minister, and a EU uh, European Commission director general. So it's kind of a, a, a mix between the two proposals. Uh, we were told that uh, this triumvirate will provide strong, coherent leadership but who exactly is in charge will rotate over time and whether a rotating uh, head can provide that leadership remains to be seen. Uh, it will meet together with political leaders, finance ministers, foreign ministers from concerned countries, quote, a few times a year. It will have a permanent staff of eight to 10 based in Brussels with a field office in Ukraine, the opposite of, of what I would have preferred, and its meetings will include representatives uh, of the IMF, World Bank, EBRD, etc., which, which uh, is important in a step in the right direction. Uh, that platform will start dispersing funds now, which is very much what Vlad and I emphasized. And, and 
what uh, the Marshall Plan did, for example, in Greece. It started uh, dispersing reconstruction funds before the Greek Civil War, long before the Greek Civil War was over, a a acknowledging that reconstruction cannot wait. So in my view, what's been done satisfies some of the necessary criteria, but not uh, others. This task is going to be challenging because uh, reconstruction needs will require raising funds from a broad uh, range of different sources from bilateral intergovernmental grants, uh, development organizations like the World Bank and, and, and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the IMF for emergency budgetary funding, pre-accession EU funds, pre-accession EU structural funds, private donations, uh, private portfolio investment, possibly, although I have reservations about this idea, seized Russian assets. It'll be important as under, under the Marshall Plan that these be grants rather than loans because Ukraine is plenty indebted already and more debt will just create more financial problems. What Ukraine needs instead is debt relief. And uh, people like our colleague Maury Obsfeld have written articulately uh, about that. A problem is that this aid, aid like this tends to be slow to materialize and it needs to be mobilized now. So there are other examples like the International Finance Facility for Immunization, uh, AIDS vaccines and, and therapeutics in Africa, agencies that have been able to issue bonds, borrow now against the uh, collateral of promised future donations by governments. And it seems to us this platform ought to be organized in, 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 in that fashion as well. So all this uh, leaves the question of exactly what projects should be funded. Uh, Vlad and I argued that the priority list of projects should be generated by the Ukrainian government, which has, or, or uh, as Roger is going to emphasize, Ukrainian governments, which have local knowledge. Um, but this new platform should develop together with the Ukrainian government um, data and digital systems for system, systematizing, controlling, reporting on those projects. Um, Ukraine has something called ProZoro, which is kind of a public procurement digital platform that provides information on projects, their funding, their stage of completion, and reconstruction would benefit from having something uh, analogous. Um, the, this platform could uh, offer donors, could offer the Gates Foundation and who knows whom else, uh, a menu of financeable projects uh, to fund projects. Uh, those projects would be pre-approved and, and coordinated, would have to be coordinated to avoid waste and, and um, duplication. And finally, to repeat, I think it's important uh, when thinking about foreign aid, reconstruction aid for Ukraine to uh, emphasize the importance of ownership for these reconstruction investments to be undertaken efficiently for the governance reforms that Gerard is gonna talk about to stick their Ukrainians have to feel ownership and they feel will feel ownership only if they're deeply invested and have a significant element of um, control. We wrote Ukraine will utilize aid most effectively when the disposition of aid is seen as 
consistent with Ukraine's own interests. Uh, the Marshall Plan's architects similarly recognized, emphasized the need for ownership on the part of aid recipients while they proceeded on the basis of trust but verify they had their agents on the ground in the recipient countries. They were concerned about the potential for corruption and diversion of funds in Greece and Italy, to pick a couple of countries not entirely at random, but they addressed those problems with people uh, on the ground. And that ownership has to rest with, uh, in Ukraine has to rest on broad domestic support achieved through not only interaction with uh, the, the national government, but uh, public consultation with local authorities, with civil society and with uh, business. So let me stop there. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Barry. Uh, uh, so so um, I'm just going to talk briefly about my chapter, which was written with uh, Timofey Milovanov, who's uh, head of the uh, uh, Kiev School of Economics. And uh, actually, when the war started, he returned to his country to help uh, 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 his country, and not only in terms of higher education, but also in terms of fundraising, etc. And uh, uh, I also recommend uh, to to any of you who uh, uh, reads Twitter, uh, uh, Timofey uh, has fantastic threads. Uh, they get better every day about what's going on, uh, life under the war, uh, life with no electricity, life when you're bombed, uh, uh, plus uh, all the the uh, you know the efforts that are being done to to help you know. Uh, uh, children, orphans, uh, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And, and he also talks about the, the events, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's going on, the war, the future of the war, uh, uh, institutions, uh, uh, et cetera. So, um, so uh, this uh, chapter is quite actually complementary to, to what uh, Barry just talked about. So uh, post-war Ukraine will not only need to rebuild its physical infrastructure, which is being thoroughly destroyed by the Russians, but also its uh, uh, institutions. And uh, to see it uh, that way, it's, it's you know, uh, basically it, it uh, we can see it as accelerating the post-Maidan reforms. So, so since the Maidan, there have been actually, you know, he mentioned the Prozoro, but there are many, many other reforms that have already started. Uh, but the ambitions of people who uh, participated, who led the Euro-Maidan, uh, uh, go much further than what has already been achieved. And, and uh, the goal is uh, for Ukraine to become a model democracy, uh, that would catch up with the most successful uh, transition countries. And among transition countries, uh, uh, Ukraine is now uh, in the middle of uh, this Russian invasion. And, and as, as horrible as it is for the uh, people who suffer, uh, etc., war often acts as an accelerator of history. And what seemed unlikely before the war uh, and, you know, there was a lot of frustration among the reformers with many reforms not going fast enough. Many of those things seem now uh, within reach. Uh, the fact that Ukraine is now a credible candidate to enter the European Union is, is actually quite fundamental. 
uh, and so there is a chance uh, with um, uh, uh, you know the the end of this conflict, uh, and of course with uh, uh, international aid to achieve uh, um, uh, quite radical reforms in terms of Ukraine's uh, governance uh, to get it completely rid of its Soviet past. Uh, um, so now, uh, first uh, thing that's very important is that Ukraine must become a full-blown uh, democracy. And, and so this is a requirement uh, uh, you know, that there should not be any waiting for that directly after the war. Uh, and already now, um, you know, Ukraine is, is going for EU accession, but it's quite clear that EU accession is only possible if Ukraine fully chooses democracy. And so just, just, uh, um, a few reminders here. Democracy is not based on ethnic identity. It's based on citizenship with rights and responsibilities based on the rule of law with equality of all citizens before the law and protection of all minorities. Democracy places value of human rights above nationalist values that would contradict the former. Democracy is open to immigration, trade, and foreign investment. Separation of powers is very important in democracies. There's no unique blueprint here, and uh, I don't want to be uh, lecturing here. I think Ukrainians have to make their own choices uh, uh, within uh, the menu of, of uh, what is possible and, and reasonable. So uh, in terms of the uh, uh, reconstruction challenges, so during the war right now, all resources are mobilized for the single goal of military victory. Uh, but once, uh, hopefully, uh, uh, soon enough, once uh, the Russians have been defeated, reconstruction will require multiple goals across time and space. And this, of course, will require uh, uh, different uh, leadership skills uh, uh, and also different uh, organizational structures. Now, uh, all this is important because the immediate post-war period is usually, for many countries, a critical juncture. What happens, what institutions are established right after the war is going to be fundamental for the future of Ukraine. And, and, you know, we know that institutions established at these critical junctures, they have inertia. Uh, now, um, in relation to, to, uh, what Barry, uh, was saying, because obviously the role of the reconstruction agency is going to be very critical for the, uh, uh reconstruction of, of Ukraine. And uh, speedy decisions will be needed in reconstruction. That's just uh, uh, how the world works. But the need for speedy decision is perfectly compatible with the establishment of democracy once we recognize that speedy decisions will be needed. And actually, um, this was shown by the experience of post-World War II uh, Western Europe, uh, and, and the experience of, uh, you know, it's, it's not a coincidence that we're talking about parallels with the Marshall Plan, uh, because the, the post-World War II, uh, experience of reconstruction in Western Europe and West Germany, uh, kind of, you know, should, should help us here. Uh, the fact that even when Russia will be defeated, you know, there, uh, very likely will be continued Russian threats. That is no good reason to limit Ukrainian democracy. So, uh, the uh, reconstruction uh, uh, agency, so Barry uh, talked about it, it was already in the very first report that came out, of which uh, many here are co-authors. 
this reconstruction agency uh, should at the same time be um, an agency for European integration. And so when Barry talked about, you know, commission-led, this makes actually a lot of sense because indeed the uh, integration into the European Union is is the is the end goal. And precisely with such a um, such a reconstruction agency, uh, it being a transitional institution, that is an institution which the, the goal of which will uh, uh, end once uh, Ukraine is part of the EU. Uh, precisely, this uh, can help to reconcile the need for speed with the need to establish correct institutions in Ukraine right after the war. And so the structure and form of organization, so Barry talked about the leadership, the funding, etc., but the organizational structure is also going to matter for uh, Ukrainian institutions. It will need to be accountable, but it will also need to have operational autonomy to allow it to operate fast and efficiently. And so so this will help to, to reconcile the need for speed and at the same time, the need to have full-blown democracy at the beginning. So uh, this agency should be in charge of Ukraine's process of integration to the EU. Seems absolutely reasonable. It should regularly monitor Ukrainian progress, not through bureaucratic checklists, but through regular uh, uh, um, uh, uh, fundamental evaluations. And it should also provide help when democratic decision making threatens to descend into stalemate, which which can happen. You know, uh, you know, we live in the US, so we know exactly what stalemate is. Uh, uh, and so, so the relationship between the reconstruction agency and Ukraine, and by Ukraine, I don't only mean the, the government and the, the you know, central local government, but also civil society, the relationship between both should be based on mutual trust and efficiency. And uh, it has been said, but needs to be repeated, Ukraine must own the reconstruction. The aid programs must be aligned with the goals of Ukraine and the collaboration between the reconstruction agency and Ukraine should contribute to build better institutions in preparation for the EU accession. So all that needs to take place at the same time. I don't have time to talk about it in details because details are sometimes very important, but, but it's all in the report. So what should be done? Uh, uh, in terms of, you know, um, a big institutional reform. So first thing I would say is the priority of judicial uh, reform. Uh, I was actually quite happy to uh, read that uh, actually after uh, Zelensky talked to the European Parliament and the heads of European Commission that this was one of the conclusions that priority of judicial reform uh, was fundamental. And indeed, Ukraine cannot become a full-fledged democracy without the rule of law and a well-functioning judiciary. And reform of the judiciary has has been a problem, you know, since 2014, since there have been attempts to to reform it. And part of it is because it's just very difficult. Training judges takes time, takes a lot of time. Uh, It must be done by experts. Uh, Again, there's scarcity of of experts, but it must be done by non-corrupt experts who, who, you know, basically give the right values, the right right attitudes, right process. But I would claim that the war has facilitated the conditions for this. First of all, there would be much more international legal help, and and it's going to be important for judicial reform. You know, uh, it's going to be quite, quite important. Uh, uh, Given the destructions that are taking place right now, the cost of judicial reform seems, relatively speaking, even though it's quite large, 
you know, uh, uh, certainly uh, is put into perspective when you look at at the rest um, uh, that's been happening and and the, the high, you know, the high cost of reconstruction that's being imposed on Ukraine puts this uh, in perspective. And so uh, because judicial reform is complicated, uh, it needs to be done. It cannot be done overnight. It needs to be done in a top-down way with the help from international experts. And, and things have already been going in that direction. This is not something new. Uh, uh, so if you look at the higher anti-corruption court in Ukraine, international experts have been helping, have been helping to, to filter uh, uh, possible uh, nominees in, in this uh, uh, area. And so, so uh, uh, this is something that, that can be done for, uh, you know, not only for the corruption courts, but for, for the, you know, the different courts. So moreover, uh, uh, many judicial decisions will need to be taken right uh, after the war. First, there's the process of punishing the collaborators with Russia. Uh, there will be the need for special tribunals. The special tribunals, actually, like there was after World War II in many European countries, they will need to be fast, but they will also need to respect fundamental principles of fair justice. So not mob justice, but fundamental principles of fair justice. And here, again, we have the, the experience and, and uh, European countries showed that this can be done uh, relatively fast. Two, the operations of the Ukrainian Reconstruction Agency will need involvement of the Ukrainian judiciary, uh, uh, if only for the enforcement of de decisions, the contracts related to grants, etc., adjudication of disputes, which will, you know, uh, undoubtedly uh, arise. And third, the rule of law is absolutely fundamental to avoid uh, uh, what has been called an illiberal democracy. And expectations among the population about the rule of law are actually fundamental in terms of, of guiding how people will behave, people's attitudes towards the law, etc. So, uh, uh, having talked about uh, the priority of judicial reform, uh, some other important things are prevent the reappearance of oligarchs. Uh, we know that uh, the power of oligarchs has been a, a has been a, a big obstacle to to reforms, and and people have been fighting uh, to reduce the influence of the oligarchs. So uh, there have been anti-oligarch laws that were voted very shortly before the the invasion. Uh, so these needs to be strengthened and the, they need to be implemented correctly via the reform judicial apparatus. Uh, to prevent the reappearance of oligarchs, uh, rigorous and effective competition policy is important. It's fundamental to break up conglomerates that uh, uh, tend to be put together by oligarchs, to strengthen the powers of the anti-monopoly committee, and uh, uh, donor conditionality, by the way, in this process can, can actually be an important lever to, to accelerate uh, uh, all this. And last but not least, party finance reform is crucial uh, uh, to prevent uh, uh, oligarchs from intervening and from you know, political uh, uh, influence. Uh, here, uh, the example of the U.S. is, is not a good one, uh, but but uh, in Europe has many uh, party finance uh, laws that can certainly be useful for uh, uh, Ukraine, uh, precisely so that you know public money can be channeled for fair uh, uh, electoral campaigns, 
and to prevent oligarchs from trying to buy influence. Media reform is also something very, very important. So media capture by oligarchs and ideologically motivated billionaires has been a threat to democracy the last decades, and this is worldwide. You know, uh, whether it's Berlusconi, Murdoch, you name it, you know, the list is long in, in, in many, many countries. Uh, it's also clear that um, in the Internet age, one cannot return to old style government ownership where the BBC would be the great uh, agency that would give the information all throughout the world. Uh, uh, so, so that's not the world we're in uh, anymore. Moreover, competition policy in itself is not going to be enough because media uh, uh, essentially produce information, provide information, and information is a public good. So, so it's it's more complicated uh, uh, to deal with it than with you know normal goods and services. Uh, some good ideas have been formulated by Julia Cage in France, who's been studying that very carefully because she she considers that you know media are fundamental uh, for a well functioning democracy. Uh, some of the measures include giving more power uh, to journalists uh, within media companies, including free expression, veto rights over takeovers. So, so um, that goes sometimes a long way. Transparency over the real owners, which very often is not the case. Unfortunately, the European Court of Justice has just ruled in the opposite direction against transparency. And so there's also a fight taking place inside the European Union about this. And, and so she has our original ideas about giving media vouchers to citizens in terms of helping, you know, using market mechanism to, to fund the media. In terms of other reforms, uh, uh, it's important to reinforce the existing separation of powers. Uh, reinforcing the powers of the president would not be a good idea. Uh, one needs, moreover, to have a stable party system and strong discipline within parties to have a strong legislature. Uh, so, so that's something that takes time, but it's important. One needs to continue the civil service reform that's been doing lots of really interesting things in terms of digitalization, professionalization, transparency. Moreover, uh, one needs to continue the drive towards uh, decentralization. So I'm not going to say anything because I know Roger is going to talk a, a lot about that, but certainly uh, this is an important avenue in terms of uh, reform. And so that's it. Thank you very much. You. Um, first of all, yeah, I've got sli a slide that has my notes of what I hope I'll say something, but let me try basically speak in, in sequence, responding to the things that people have started. And, and, uh, and, I, and I should first of all say, uh, look around at the panel around me and, and, and you see the proof of what, why someone... Uh, if, I can't, if, what, if one wants to be part of a discussion about you, the problems of Ukraine, the situation, and how, and, and how to think most deeply about how to help Ukraine in the future, uh, that, that coming to Berkeley is the place to be. Because uh, in North, if you can't be in Ukraine, if you're going, if you're going to be in North America, let's say, uh, this is this, 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 the, the co-authors uh, around me who, who contributed and edited this, pan, this, this, this important document and the people and and who I share the, this desk this, this this panel with are are the proof uh, I'm very very glad to be here and this is really an important discussion um the you know the, 
The Russian invasion has caused vast destruction in Ukraine. Uh, post-war reconstruction is going to be expensive. The estimates are uh, that five hundred billion, a trillion dollars over over the coming decade. Uh, and and as Gerard has emphasized, uh, decisions will have to be made quickly. As, as Barry has emphasized, uh, they, 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 things should begin even before the end of the war. But when but 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 even even when we do not know when a an end of the war with Ukraine's freedom uh, uh, being. Uh, uh, one and guaranteed uh, is, is is in sight. Uh, we it, it's it's appropriate to begin planning and thinking about that now because the the aid is needed. Uh, hopes for a more peaceful world will depend on maintaining the principle that military aggression, international military aggression, cannot succeed. Um, I would argue that uh, perhaps the most fundamental goal that Putin. Uh, drove Putin to to launch this war was his desire, uh, his his sense of urgency. I think in his mind that 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 he wanted to prevent Ukraine from providing a positive example of successful democracy uh, in in a neighboring Slavic country that that could uh, 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 inspire Russians to question whether they need to be uh, governed by a corrupt uh, autocracy in Moscow. Uh, so Putin could lose the war, be driven out of the territory of Ukraine, and still achieve his goal. If uh, if even after defeat, Ukraine is left in ruins and uh, and people in 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 uh, in, in a ruined nation uh, suffer material lo- uh, the legacy of, of war. Um, therefore, I would argue that generous offers of reconstruction assistance from the United States, from Europe, from the world will be appropriate because they they will benefit the the global interests of the donors as well as uh, most importantly, the, the recipients uh, in setting a positive example for the fact that uh, that, that a, a, a military aggressor cannot achieve his goals. I should I should say at least briefly that it certainly can be argued that the that the that the, the, the Russian Federation has a moral obligation to pay reparations for the damages that they've caused. Uh, this is their decision to launch this war. This is their, uh, but uh, but I have myself studied uh, the. The, the 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 post-World War I reparations uh, uh, where ex- efforts to extract reparations from Germany poisoned German politics and ultimately uh, set the stage for uh, the rise of a militant regime and, 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 a, and an even more disastrous and destructive war, Second World War. Uh, and that precedent suggests that whatever happens at the end of this war, whatever the political situation in Moscow may be, uh, that we should not be too optimistic about uh, trying to compel Russian to pay more, Russia to pay more after the war. I'm not a an, an international lawyer, so I can't judge seizing their assets. But it sure sounds as let me just say, as a as a with no other credentials than being a human being, that uh, that it, I can't imagine anything more just than taking seized assets and and using them uh, uh, to to help rebuild Ukraine, re- seized Russian assets. But I would would. Er- Urge us not to be too optimistic about paying for the rest of the re- rest of the reconstruction by by subsequent uh, uh, charges on Russia. That means it's going to be expensive. Uh, but uh, but I would argue uh, that we're thinking about reconstruction over a period of of years. Uh, it's going to take at least five to ten, you know, five up to ten years of of, of work. Uh, that that the cost of reconstruction over that period will be a fraction of what the United States and its European allies expect to pay for defense in that period. And it's and as a precedent that's going to help to, to make a more peaceful world, 
uh, investment in reconstruction assistance should be judged as a good investment by the same standards that we judge investments in 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 our defense in our huge defense budgets. Uh, but of course, assistance funds have to be spent effectively. Here, I I have to say I'm most influenced by the. Uh, uh, um, I want to say that the, the, the a basic lesson from the Marshall Plan is the post-war reconstruction uh, in Europe in 1940. From the Marshall Plan for post-war reconstruction in Europe in 1948 was that foreign reconstruction assistance can be much more effective when it helps promote um, reforms that will be important for the subsequent growth of the recipient. This is an analysis I I I, I take from from the excellent paper by uh, Barry Eichengreen and, and, and Brad DeLong in 1991, an analysis of the Marshall Plan. Uh, and, and I think they're, they're, they've, they've made the case extremely convincingly. It's an important point. Yes, in 1948, the, the key thing in, in, in for Europe was to lower uh, barriers to international trade with between European nations. Um, reforms are, are difficult because there are losers from reforms, but there are a lot more gainers. That's why you want them uh, and, and protecting... At reducing protection, national protection within Europe that was uh, against against the the exports of other European nations uh, was only um, impoverishing the continent uh, as a whole. Um, so we now have to ask in 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 the twenty first century what are the reforms that need need to be uh, um, uh, encouraged in in Ukraine? Certainly, one we, uh, um, Gerard has has emphasized judicial reform among others uh, as uh, high in the list. Uh, and, and Barry has emphasized, that, and, and I think it's widely agreed, that, that Ukrainians need to get ready for, to, to become part of the European Union. That is one of the aspirations of, 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 of the Ukrainian people uh, put in their constitution. And, uh, and, and, for that, and, and it's for that reason that, uh, that we're talking about urging the, uh, the, the donors to agree on working through a, uh, a, 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 Reconstruction assist foreign assistance coordinating agency that um, that is is run by the European Union or at least require the the, the standards for fiscal controls uh, for for appropriate budgeting and and, and fiscal reporting uh, that that are, are are part of well managed government spending. The United States has standards. Europe has standards. Whose standards do you want to apply? They're all good. The answer should be, of course, the European standards, because that's the standards that that, Europe, that Ukrainian government officials should be learning, and, and and they don't need to learn American standards where they differ from Ukrainian standards. So that so it should be through a, a European agency. But I would argue one of the other truly crucial reforms in in Ukraine has been, and it is still incomplete, has been a, a, a decentralization of, of of Ukraine. I I personally have been involved with Ukraine since. 2014, when when working with Timothy Milovanov, I was an advocate for for uh, decentralization because there was a, a, a we understood that although there were locally elected mayors and there were local councils at the provincial level, um, uh, the mayors had no reliable budgets, and the uh, the provincial and, and district councils had absolutely no no influence over any executive power. They they were limited, very limited influence. They were they had no no real power. Um, so everything in Ukraine was centralized, uh, and so let me just you know I I think one of the important sentences uh, I'm going to quote directly from uh, Gerard's uh, chapter in the book with with the Timothy Milovanov. Uh, it's very important that the Ukrainian government owns the reconstruction that that it sets the priorities 
and suggest the projects for the reconstruction agency to, to implement, to fund and implement. Okay, that's uh, the phrase, the Ukrainian government, is that I, I completely agree with that, but we need to not to go not to jump to conclusions about what what the Ukrainian government means. If the Ukrainian government means only the president's office, uh, that, that that clearly is a mistake. Uh, uh, the Ukrainian people need to own it th own the, the the reconstruction process through their democratically elected government. They have a democratically elected government, but it consists of yes, a a prime minister who's responsible to the elected national assembly, the Verkhovna Rada, the legislature of Ukraine, a popularly elected president, and there's a, a new system of, 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 of local councils and mayors that has been created in the years 2015 to, to, to 2020, a reform. Uh, the, the, the municipal boundaries were in, the, in the countryside were changed. And the other major reform was that, the, that uh, uh, reliable budgeting was given. And now in Ukraine, 60% uh, of the personal income tax uh, uh, that, that people pay by law since 2015, goes to the municipality in which the, the, the individual resides. Now, that's not as much as it sounds because Ukraine is more funded by the value-added tax than personal income tax, but, but it is a substantial funding. I think it's of the order of, of about 20% of, of the total public budget that goes directly into the municipalities. And that didn't exist. To understand something, let me say, one of the things we should think about, just to appreciate the importance of this, um, there is... Uh, in, in March and April of 2014, a, after seizing the Donbass, a, a, I'm sorry, after seizing Crimea, a small band of, of, of Kremlin-inspired or Kremlin-directed subversives managed to subvert local governments in, in, in much of Donetsk and, and Luhansk province, provinces. Um, resistance was weak. Uh, one of the th things... Uh, when we were debating uh, decentralization, there were some people who thought decentralization would pull the country apart, but I would argue exactly the opposite, and the, the, the history since then will prove that it's exactly the opposite. The problem in, in 2014 was that nobody in, in every everyone in, in the eastern government in the eastern province in these eastern provinces understood that under the centralized government of Ukraine that it had a centralized system that had been inherited from the Soviet era. Um, yes, there was democracy and the new national government was going to um, be elected by millions of people, but most of those millions of, of voters who were going to elect, the, who were going to vote for the new, new leadership were people in central and western Ukraine, and that this new national leadership was going to totally control the local administration. That meant that in, in many areas of Donetsk and Luhansk and other eastern regions, uh, there, there could be communities where nobody thought they were going to have any influence over the, the the future of their local administration, and so even locally respected leaders had no incentive, no power, no incentive to uh, stand up and, and take some risks in organizing their communities to resist the not necessarily popular uh, subversive uh, separatist message of, of 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 the of the Kremlin even in that time. Um, since the reform, absolutely every part of, of free Ukraine has locally elected mayors with real responsibilities who are in, in power because their community trusts them, they, they elected them, and who have a real budget, and, and they have stepped up. And we've seen in occupied areas the Russians systematically uh, targeting the mayors because they know that they become leaders of resistance. And the, re the resistance of the Ukrainian people has been heroic in 2022 and now uh, in, in where, where it was... It was painfully missing 
in, in the Eastern Ukraine in, in 2014. And there are several important reasons the Maidan reforms have a lot to do with much of this, but the, the decentralization reform is an important part of it. As, as Timothy Brick and, and Jennifer Medezashvili have observed in foreign affairs recently, uh, that citizens of Ukraine have rallied not just in support of President Zelensky in Kiev, but also to defend their locally elected mayors and community councils. It's for that reason, I, I'd want to suggest to, that, that the we should recognize that the, that, the, the, that the reform, the decentralization reform is one of the most important reforms. It has strengthened Ukraine at, against uh, foreign resistance. And, and there, the reform has been in place only a few years, but, but in, I've can cite some articles in Vox Ukraine that have, that show evidence of that, that in the, in the, between 2022, between 20, in the first two years, uh, that the, that the public spending, local public spending was measurably improved, uh, by having it handled by locally accountable um, uh, 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 lo- local local officials, mayors and councilors who owed their votes to to the people with who they were spending and to support of, as opposed to the presidentially appointed uh, uh, older system, the presidentially appointed governors. Um, so, so to support and, and advance this, uh, I would argue that 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 the for, the foreign assistance budgets should at the at the high at the macro level should plan to take a significant fraction. If I was going to name a number, I'd say one third. But it, maybe if it's 20% of the public budget, that seems like a floor, but I would suggest something, some fraction, not necessarily a majority, but some very significant fraction of the public budget should be set aside for for, for projects that are being directed by uh, local uh, locally elected officials, the mayors and the local and the locally elected local councillors at the municipal level and even at the district level. Uh, there could be a formula saying how to take the, the 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 portion that is set aside for local local reconstruction projects uh, that can be divided by any kind of objective formula among the various dix, districts of, of Ukraine. Uh, and I would certainly urge that the 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 reconstruction the foreign foreign assistance foreign reconstruction assistance agency should have an office in every district so that they an EU uh, a, a familiar a, a, a official who's who who knows the EU system can can help the mayors and the lo- other locally elected officials to to work together to formulate district-wide plans for how to spend the money in ways that are, are properly budgeted with proper controls according to the the, the international standards that the, that this agency should impose for them and uh that kind of assistance uh should be part of the story i wish that, that we could have put this more in the book early because the the, the the book that we're celebrating today has chapters that focus on a variety of different specific areas health education and some of those areas, the discussion can, should be starting now. Which of those areas are particularly appropriate to to expect the uh, the local governments to take the, the the lead on, and which of them, of course, should be the uh, 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 should be run out of a national uh, 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 Ukrainian officials uh, under the president and prime minister uh, of the nation? Uh, as I say, uh, I think I would like to cite before quitting that that that, that having the the foreign assistance engaged with local uh the locally elected officials as well as with the national government understanding that the national that that ukraine has a, it's a separation of powers between nationally elected individual officials and, and and locally elected officials and that that as in the united states for example 
benefits them that the Europe, in the foreign assistance being being uh, engaged with both levels will make will improve monitoring. If there's a national a, a project that's funded and administered under the national government and it promises to, to provide a certain kind of local benefits that that, that it totally fails to provide. Uh, you can you can expect that that uh, the mayor of uh, of an adversely affected community might communicate that fact uh, to the to the to the European officials, and so to have to to, to assist with monitoring international monitoring, uh, that it, it's good to be engaged on both levels. But to to end, I'd say that one other uh, we understand that um, uh, I think that. When those of us who are working in this, this area are, are thinking about this, uh, we we start with a sense of optimism that that that, that yes, international that, that that controls that the Ukrainian people want, the Ukrainian government wants, and that the international donors want can reduce the the uh, the, the threat of 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 money being wasted, stolen by by divert corrupt diversion. But an economist has to say that any kind of uh, uh, there's going to be private management of of public reconstruction projects. That's 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 the right way to do things throughout the, the world. And uh, and 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 contractors who do this should expect a positive profit. But people who take the risks to manage these projects should be doing so under a way that they get some kind of uh, with, with if they do their job right and and do manage it efficiently, uh, they should be expecting to make some money on that. That is how contracting works. And we're talking about vast sums of money. The, the amount of money we're talking about, uh, the, the estimates of reconstruction cost are between three and five times uh, uh, the, the annual GDP of, of, of Ukraine before the war, uh, much larger than, 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 than government spending, a large multiple of annual government spending before the war. So there's a lot of profits to be made, even with well-managed, uh, um, and when we're talking about of the, the threat of, of, of a new oligarchy, um, if it all of the money, all if five hundred billion dollars over five years is given to Ukraine entirely through under the direction of of an agency that that, that is served say under the president of the country, um, a small there will be a handful of business people who are well connected with that agency and 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 we cannot discount the possibility that even with a well-managed, well-monitored system, that the most profitable contractors, most profitable contracts are going to be steered to people who have personal connections and the trust of high officials. That happens everywhere in the world. I would stipulate that it would that, that it would be much better for the future of Ukraine if, a, if the vastly wider circle of business people who have connections with their local mayor's office, who have a good, good if all of them have a chance to get some inside track on on offering their services as contractors for profitable contracts. And for that extent, decentralizing money and decentralizing authority over the aid donations will be an important way of, of, of limiting the, 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 the threat of a, of a future Ukraine that is dominated by a small circle of oligarchs. Having said that, I should say that we should recognize that it, in international conventions, the usual system is, is for all aid to be centralized. And so I would say it's particularly important that 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 we should be trying to emphasize the question of decentralization of putting forward the 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 claims of 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 the mayors to have a share of of, of international assistance directly from 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 the donors uh, and uh, in contact with the donor agency uh, because 
uh, the international norm has, is, is to work only through the, the highest levels of the national government. And, and, and certainly the highest levels of the national government are, are going to have a lot of people there who would like to have uh, their, 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 uh, with, 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 with all, with all the best intentions, uh, will, 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 will be in a position to have their friends profit from, from, from their controlling as much as possible. So they're not going to volunteer to give it to someone else. And, and so I, I, I do stipulate that, 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 that this is something that if academics don't talk about it, Nobody else will. So let's start here and, and, and raise this question. Thank you. Thank you so much. First of all, I want to thank everybody who participates in this panel for coming and sharing their thoughts, also contributing to this uh, book. I have a small job to summarize uh, 400 pages, which were not covered by uh, the panel is here. Um, also, what I'm hearing is that, you know, the reconstruction of Ukraine is a continuous process, right? So this is one report. Uh, we had an earlier report issued in April of 2022. At that point, it was still very, very much uncertain if Ukraine is going to survive the invasion. Uh, we have a little bit more information now, major developments. You know, Ukraine is a part of the European Union. And so we felt compelled that we need to update this uh, document. Um, now we have new ideas, you know, decentralization, how we should organize the governments. You know, I'm, I'm sure we'll have a, another volume describing how reconstruction of Ukraine should look like. Um, now, this is a book with 14 chapters, which can be grouped into four buckets. One is about hardware, like, you know, what do we do with energy sector? What do we do with transportation infrastructure? Uh, what do you do with business environment? Uh, what should be the labor market? What should be the taxation system? What should be the regulatory framework? And also, what should be the software, the institutions, and and, and human capital? And Gerard already talked about, you know, the importance of institutions for economic development. Uh, Roger mentioned decentralization. You know, this is all about software. You know, something which is not buildings, bridges, and so on. Um, now, I don't have time to talk about principles. You know, many people already mentioned that ownership, coordination, uh, you know, fighting corruption, EU integration, this is all important that we should keep in mind when we design the reconstruction that what we want to achieve was this. Um, now, main takeaways. Okay, so I'll try to summarize all these other chapters in a series of uh, slides. First of all, obviously, we have to minimize damages now during the war. So if you don't have proper education for children, this is going to have a, you know, almost permanent effect on the life trajectories of many, many, you know, kids, students, and so on. So we have to help those people now. We don't have to wait until the war is over. Uh, one also implication of this is that Ukraine obviously needs more weapons to defend itself. You know, it's very clear. We don't want to have energy infrastructure destroyed completely. We want to save as much as possible. The second key message is that, you know, now during the war, the pressure on Ukraine is extreme. We don't have resources to pay, you know, pensions, to pay for education, to buy weapons. Um, and it's very clear that in this extremely critical juncture, Ukraine does not receive, you know, kind of a stable flow of support, economic aid, military aid uh, from its allies. The, the current infrastructure is not good for that. We have delays, we have promises which never fulfilled. And Barry already mentioned that we need new infrastructure for establishing a stable flow of aid. We need new institutions like, you know, this development agency. Uh, we need new financial instruments when Ukraine can, or this agency can borrow against pledges of future aid 
from uh, from the allies and so you can get money today you can get this uh reconstruction uh front loaded you know when the need is the highest the third message is that it's very clear it's going to be extremely uh costly 500 billion dollars a trillion dollars at this point it's a very fluid number we can have more or less it depends on how much destruction we have in the end but it is very clear that public money is not going to be enough to rebuild ukraine and we don't need enough you know we don't need you know too much public money in the end it's going to be private investment that is going to bring technologies to ukraine know-how integrate ukrainian value chains global value chains make sure that ukraine is going to have a sustainable economic you know trajectory and so the main objective here then has to be that we take public money and try to leverage as much as possible this you know port of resources try to provide for example military insurance you know there is a lot of risk associated with doing business in ukraine you know if you worried that you know tomorrow you can lose your factory because it will be attacked but with russian missiles obviously you're not going to make an investment but if you have an, an insurance which is going to cover most of your losses is going to make it much more attractive and we have some other elements of what you can do like public private partnerships uh, we have uh, development banks that can take equity stakes risk sharing of all types of uh, uh, that can be done by the ukrainian government or other governments so the main objective here is that you have to attract private money as much as possible the forces that you know the reconstruction of ukraine is not about rebuilding ukraine to the state it was on the 23rd of february 2022 right we don't want that we have to have a real audit of what we have where we go and what we need to do and for example here this map here shows the railroad uh, network in ukraine it's moscow centric north south okay ukraine is not going to trade with russia anytime soon and so so the flows should be the rail should be going east west okay for this you need to have new tracks that's number one number two because you're going to trade with the european union you have to have the same gauge as the european union it's going to be costly you know this is some estimates uh, but you're not going to do it in one year it's going to be spread over 10 years it's a lot of money but it's a huge investment okay that needs to be done and also has a security component because what russians are doing now they're basically using the ukrainian network to transport their troops because they have exactly the same gauge so if we change the gauge we not only make it easier to trade with the european union we also address a major security concern some sense probably will never come back you know the the serious in eastern ukraine have been declining long before the war the war accelerated this process economic activity was shifting towards the west towards the european union and you know frankly i'm not sure what is the future of some of the cities they don't have any fundamental to be there anymore it used to be like a soviet factory that soviet factory is destroyed you know why people would come back there uh, some cities obviously will be rebuilt you know for example Mariupol is here it was totally destroyed but it has some good economic fundamentals it's a big port city you have supplies of you know coal iron ore and so on so it can be a very prosperous city but for some cities for example Kharkiv it's only 40 kilometers from the Russian border it may be shelled even now it will okay so what do we do with the city it's the second largest city uh in ukraine so if imagine los angeles can be attacked by whoever uh, is this going to be a prosperous city probably not but we have to think about what we can offer to this city so that it can has it can have some fundamentals to be prosperous 
uh, we talked a lot about this, that, you know, the speed is is critical, right? So we, if we want to have successful reforms, we have to front load them. We don't have to wait until the end of the war. Like all this talk about corruption and so on, we can handle this even now while missiles are flying, right? We can have a new law, a new institution, a new uh, agency to enforce these laws because everything else went Everything else that is going to happen at the reconstruction age, when big money is going to come into Ukraine, it's all going to rely on the quality of institutions, how much anti-corruption you can have, how much de-oligarchization you have in the country. Decentralization is great because it creates competition. More uh, powers to anti-monopoly, antitrust agency, that's going to be good because it's going to undermine the economic base of oligarchs. And obviously, the sooner you can align uh, everything with the European Union, the better and faster the process is going to go. Because if you want to have a flow of money going into Ukraine, it's a lot easier if the rules are the same in Ukraine and, say, in Germany. Uh, I already told you that we see massive relocation of resources, people during the war. Millions of people left their homes. Uh, and, you know, this process was already happening before the war. People were moving from eastern Ukraine to western Ukraine to central Ukraine. This process is going to be accelerated. We will see massive relocation of capital, labor, you know, resources. Uh, we need to set up a framework that is going to facilitate, not slow down this relocation. So it means more liberal economic environment. You have to retrain people. You will have lots and lots of veterans. You have to use them productively. Some people are going to be still outside Ukraine, but it doesn't mean we cannot use them. Right. So we can use remote work if somebody has expertise. You know, this person may contribute via Zoom or something like that. Um, you know, we know the sustainable economic trajectory is only possible if you have solid human capital. Okay, so it means you have to invest a lot in R&D and science. <laughs> I mean, probably it's natural in Berkeley to say this, but also in education. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Ukraine had good initial conditions in 91 when it became an independent state. But over time, there was almost conscious disinvestment into this. And we need to reverse the trends. We have to get rid of, you know, social kind of metrics of success and move away from quantity-based measures to quality-based measures. Obviously, also inclusion is going to be a big deal. So many people uh, are going to be traumatized by the war. We need to help them. Okay, so inclusion is going to be a very important uh, element of reconstruction. the final point I want to make is that uh, we often frame this as, um, as you know, kind of a one-way street. You know, money goes from outside the world towards Ukraine. But in fact, it's a win-win situation. Ukraine has a lot to offer to, to the European Union and the world. You know, Ukraine is a major source of agricultural production, right? And it's going to only grow in the future because productivity in the sector in Ukraine is still very low. So you can easily double agricultural output. Um, European Union has struggled for years to develop its own Silicon Valley. Like you think about IT companies in Europe and you can hardly name any. Okay. Ukraine is a sort of a wild east area, right? So you have this, uh, ecosystem created in Ukraine where you can do anything, uh, in the IT sector and you can be super successful. And many people don't know, but the number one ex, number one expert from Ukraine to the United States is IT services. Right. So it, it tells you that, you know, this is where the future is. And even during the war now, uh, the IT sector grew in double digits. Right. So in this very difficult conditions, when you don't have electricity, you can still be very, very successful. It tells you something. 
Friendshoring, that's a big deal. You know, we all reevaluate our vulnerabilities and risks, right? If you trade with China, you start to wonder, you know, like, is it really a safe investment? Maybe we should have our production or, you know, production chains, value chains, you know, relocated to more friendly countries. And, you know, Ukraine has a lot to offer in this respect. You know, think about, you know, you need to produce something and ship it to Europe. If you have a container, put it on a truck, in Kiev and ship it to Berlin, it was going, it's going to take only one day. If you want to ship a container from Shanghai to Hamburg, it will take a month, right? In this current economy where speed is everything, this geographical proximity is a huge advantage. Now, on the top of this, you have highly educated labor force. It's going to be very cheap. So you have every reason to be uh, you know, optimistic about French shoring as a source of growth in Ukraine. Now, to conclude... You know, you look at the images of Ukrainian cities and, you know, it looks horrible. Like you wonder like, if economic life or people are going to return to these places. But, you know, frankly, we have seen this before. This is current after World War II, total destruction. The bridge is destroyed. Like the whole downtown is completely in ruins. The only place that is still kind of reasonably intact is, is the cathedral. And you think, okay, the, the, the city is done. Nobody is going to come back. Uh, this is how Ukraine looks now. A very vibrant city, a lot of economic life. You know, people want to live there. You know, if I can do it for Kuril after World War II, we should be able to do it for Mariupol as well. And so to conclude, if you didn't have a chance to read this book, um, it's uh, meant to be accessible to the general public. Um, hopefully it is. It's a little long, 450 pages. And uh, obviously we look forward to an opportunity to develop these ideas further and happy to uh, get your questions and answer. Thank you. A brief comment and a question. <clears throat> this war in Ukraine is really for two purposes to benefit the U.S. military-industrial complex and the 1% of the West and for the U.S. fossil fuel industry. Biden said he would make sure of that. The people of Europe have never been able to get along, and now not even though they're all capitalists. So what else is new? U Ukraine should be the EU's responsibility, not the U.S.'s responsibility. The U.S. needs to rebuild the black and brown lower income community right here and to reinforce and upgrade and rebuild our own infrastructure, especially electricity and water. I'm sorry to say that in part, Professor Meyerson engaged in a bit of PR war propaganda. My question is, what happens to the European economies and the European financial markets if or when the first nuclear weapon goes off on European soil? because you're involved in propaganda. So, <laughs> so, so first of all, um, I mean, you know, let me respond to uh, the role of the U.S. Uh, in a way. There, there is the argument, and I've heard many people say, you know, it's Europe's responsibility, you know, the U.S. should not be involved. I've heard that a lot. But you have to see that what is going on right now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine 
uh, is fundamental, not only for peace in Europe. The Europeans understand that the people of the Baltic countries in Poland, they, they, they had been invaded at some point by the Russians. So they know what it is to be occupied by the Russians and they understand the danger, you know, look at what's happening in Moldova these, these last two days. So, so it's not a vain threat, but it's also fundamental for uh, world peace. And uh, for at least two reasons, and, and that's why I think, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, should should play a role. Uh, first of all, uh, Putin wants to go back to 19th century imperialist politics, where you divide territories among uh, big powers, and uh, it's all, you know, imperialistic motivations, etc. And so therefore, big country like Russia should have the right to its buffer zones. It should have the right to invade other countries. It has its own legitimate concerns. It's big. And so therefore, uh, it's legitimate. So, so this is quite important. The international order does not function very well. So, so, you know, in democracies, we talk about the rule of law. You don't really have the rule of law at the international level. And, and, you know, uh, uh, the U.S. has a responsibility in it that, you know, in some administrations, they they violated completely, you know, uh, international law, etc. But but uh, uh, it is a general aspiration of the world. Already you see the fact that uh, dictators who are murderers in their own country, that they can be brought to justice in The Hague. Uh, or so, so these are all new events. I think, I think, you know, the future of the world is one where we try to have rule of law at the international level. Putin wants to go exactly in the opposite direction, which is why, you know, the Ukraine conflict, if Russia wins, then that means this is, we're going to go back to 19th century, uh, 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 politics. And with nuclear weapons, this is a recipe for a catastrophe. Number two reason why the U.S. Uh, uh, should uh, and, and also why it's also playing a role actively is that China is looking at what's happening in Ukraine. If the Russians win and they say, look, you know, uh, we're three Russians for one Ukrainian, Taiwan versus China, the much more, you know, much bigger ratio. So we just go and, and take the island. Uh, uh, so uh, on the other hand, if Russia is defeated, I think many people in China will think twice because also, frankly, uh, uh, as much as right now the Ukraine conflict remains on, on, uh, uh, European territory, uh, uh, any invasion of Taiwan by China could really very quickly turn to World War III. And then, then, you know, who knows what's going to happen. So, so therefore, I think, you know, the fact that, uh, helping Ukraine win is actually fundamental for world peace. It's fundamental for the future institutions of the international order, but it's also uh, uh, quite fundamental for world peace. I, I just heard, I don't know if this is really happening, so the Wang Huning, who's the chief ideologue in China, has been put in charge of rethinking the role of Taiwan. And one idea that came around is that, well, let's call Taiwan as part of a Chinese Commonwealth, just like Canada, Australia as part of the, uh, you know, UK. If they did that, I'm very skeptical, but if they did that, this could prevent, you know, war, uh, in, in Asia. So, so, and, and this is partly a reflection of what has been happening with the Russian failures in Ukraine. So, so everything is connected. You I'm sorry. No, you, I, thank you for your question. Uh, I think it is appropriate. We are here to have an academic discussion. Nobody here is running for office. 
you suggested the the questioner suggested other priorities. Uh, I think he he didn't have time, of course, to list the details of what he would want to spend more money on. And but I suspect that if he did get into details, I would be one of the people on his side who would agree. I regret that that it was it's it's it. I did try to address the question of why should the United States uh, commit large resources and why should Europe and other parts of the world commit large resources to uh, to reconstruct Ukraine? And I've given that argument, I, and, and I will say so. But and it was not intended as propaganda; it was intended as policy analysis. Uh, we live in a world where different people have different priorities. Many there are many priorities for public spending. Uh, there is a political process for that, and uh, and my agreement with the questioner about but funding certain priorities to help people right here in 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 this in, in the Bay Area in in poor city poor areas of of, of the cities and the countryside. Uh, if we're talking about spending more, it's because the political process has not prevailed in 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 favor of of the questioner and myself. But I tried to say. We are spending a great deal on defense. We are spending an enormous amount on defense. That defense, uh, you can question it. The question, the questioner certainly would, but it has a purpose. It has a purpose to have a peaceful world. We, in fact, live in a very peaceful world compared to human, much of human history. Uh, a taboo against international conquest is an extremely important part of that making the world more peaceful than it was in the previous century and, and in centuries before that. Um, and what I argued was, given the amount of money that the United States spends on defense, uh, that repurposing some of it now to help the Ukrainians fight the war and repurposing it to help the Ukrainians to, uh, to rebuild their country after the war makes sense is a good investment by the very standards by which we have our country, as whether the questioner would agree or not, decided it is worth Americans' while to invest a great deal in military preparedness, uh, that this is for the purpose of ensuring we live in a peaceful world. You know, and, the, and if this aggression against Ukraine succeeds, uh, the, the world will be much more dangerous for people, for all Americans, and for all residents of the world, uh, and by the way, I would say also for people in Moscow, uh, that it will be a vastly more dangerous world, and that is the urgency with which we have gathered today. We have a sympathy for the people of Ukraine. We want them to be well off. We also have a sympathy for people in other parts of the world. But hard self-interest also motivates, not just generosity, but our hard self-interest is, 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 is an argument, and, uh, and that was what I tried to make. I'm going to have to I'm 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 going to have to excuse myself Jeff in a minute but I can't you know my view is that I I I share the priority you attach to advancing social political racial justice in the United States but history as I read it shows that if we uh uh attempt to do that in an unstable geopolitical environment where we turn inward like we did in the 1920s, we will fail. Um, yeah, um, thank you for your lecture. And I think um, this plan is really comprehensive and it might really work. But um, my question would be, do you think it might be a little bit too ambitious? Because um, it seems to me that this plan would face pressure from um, oligarchs, from 
governments like Russia and also maybe even pressure from the public if they're not fond of large-scale reforms. So are you guys concerned about this? You know, one thing you have to see is that, you know, Ukraine became independent in 1991. Not much happened. There was a lot of corruption. The privatization was really a mess. Oligarchs were, you know, came came around. But in 2014, uh, with the Maidan uh, movement, this was this was a really revolutionary movement where the young people, uh, people who were fed up with the corruption, they wanted reform. They wanted to be a true democracy. They didn't want to be a, a Russian satellite country. They wanted to be part of the European Union. You know, that's also why they call it the Euromaidan. So, so there's a very, and now being invaded, look, look at all those uh, Russian speaking people that Putin was there coming to save, you know, in Mariupol and everywhere destroyed. Uh, uh, the children being deported, you know, somewhere in Russia. We don't know where, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. So, so, uh, 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 you know, the, the support uh, uh, for Ukrainian defense against Russia is much stronger than, than it ever was. And, and you know, Roger talked a little bit about some of the problems uh, uh, after the, the Maidan with people in eastern Ukraine. But but now people are all, uh, uh, you know, behind the Ukrainian army. This is this is just, you know, think about it. Uh, uh, countries invaded by by Japan in World War II or by Germany in World War II. You know the population is is really uh, uh, very strongly behind. It. Of course, there are collaborators, there are opportunists. You know those will be uh, uh, punished uh, later on. Uh, uh, surely uh, there will be people, uh, you know, oligarchs. Uh, by the way, their power has gone down tremendously because their assets have been destroyed by missiles. But also the anti-oligarch laws, their their influence during the war uh, uh, has gone down, and and there is now increasingly this is something really new a, 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 str- a strong intolerance of Ukraine of Ukrainians towards this kind of politics, relying on oligarchs, this kind of feudal relations where you become some kind of you know, uh, uh, valet to uh, oligarchs. So, so, so there is very important change that's taking taking place right now because of the war. I have a question about the, the ethnic. Oh, thanks. The the ethnic and cultural dissimilarity between the East and the West, and while the Russians have actually become now the common enemy and really misplayed and misunderstood that those ethnic tensions exist. They existed before and they'll probably exist afterward. So while decentralizing certainly is one way to handle that. Is there also a cultural component of that that needs to be considered similar to say what happens in Canada uh, and it, is there always going to be a certain amount of ethnic and cultural distrust or, or tension, regardless of these other reforms? I mean, half of my family is from Eastern Ukraine, another half is from Central Ukraine. Um, we were always bilingual. You can speak Russian or Ukrainian. And so as far as uh, in my from my perspective, you know, all this idea is that there is a giant tension between East and West or, you know, some other part of the country. This is an exaggeration, right? So we always lived in peace. There was no war. Uh, you know, one advantage of decentralization is that if somebody wants to, ha- you know, Ukraine has a, you know, a lot of diversity, ethnic diversity, you know, language diversity. You can speak any language. Nobody's going to 
complain about this. And, you know, one strength of Ukraine is that it has been an exclu- inclusive society. Like, you know, our president is uh, is a Jew, right? And throw a very few countries out there who have a president who is not coming from the majority, from the major ethnic group. Uh, we have lots and lots of, you know, people from Bulgaria, from Hungary, from uh, Greece, from like, you know, one of the biggest uh, minorities in Mariupol were the Greeks. And they were totally decimated, you know, uh, one of the uh, cabinet officials from Greece was trying to rescue them. They lived peacefully. They never had problems with with the government or being oppressed or anything like this. But, you know, we can help these communities to develop further. This is why decentralization is so important. If somebody wants to teach, you know, X language in school, they should be able to do that. And it's important to give resources for these local communities to achieve that objective. So they have to have, you know, a stable tax resource. Uh, they should have freedom in making these decisions. Uh, I'm a big supporter of decentralization reforms. The, the presidential election results in, in Ukraine's independent history from the 90s to, to, through 2010 show enormous polarization between East and West. That ended in, in the 2014 and the 2019 presidential elections it's the, the the winning candidates got majority votes on all sides of the country and uh the threat of of the kremlin uh we can give putin a little bit of the credit for uh, bringing ukrainians together people are being divided but the those divisions have changed since objectively it's I would like to thank you, first of all, very much for your endeavor as someone who is studying Russian nationalism, as a Greek, uh, by the way, that you just mentioned, studying Russian nationalism and have been keeping uh, a close eye on what's going on in Ukraine. Um, I was very pleased to listen about the reforms that aim to bring Ukraine closer to the European Union. And I would like to ask you, do you think realistically this could happen um, anytime soon? Like, obviously, after the war, Europe also has an interest to drag Ukraine in the EU wagon, maybe more than when it had an incentive, more than the 2014 Euromaidan. What would you think the perspectives will be nowadays to come closer to Europe, even with an integration, if this would be possible? Thank you. You know, a lot of European politics is, is basically you talk, you talk until you have a solution and, and, and it's always a moving target. So whatever is said today has to be taken with a grain of salt. But Ukraine is candidate to be a member of the European Union. That's something very important. Everybody agrees that the reforms uh, uh, that have been implemented already, it's going really fast. Moreover, we also understand the geopolitical aspect. And so, you know, it's not, you know, you have the bureaucrats at Brussels say, oh, oh, wait, they have to do these thousands of pages, you know, they have to coordinate, synchronize, et cetera. The geopolitical aspect is, is also quite, quite important here. Uh, um, if, if Ukraine, uh, succeeds, uh, it's in the interest of the European Union to, to have it firmly inside the European Union. And frankly, we don't know what's going to happen with Russia. But this is something that certainly the Germans have always understood. You know, Russia is there. You can't, you know, ignore it. And so even if Ukraine wins now, 
many problems will be postponed for later. And and you know, and one thing um, you know, people realize it's true that that many Europeans have been free riding on the U.S. military uh, support, and then they should do much more for their own uh, defense. So, so so you know, again, saying is it going to be two years? Is it going to you know? That's but but I think. Uh, it's it's so far what we've seen is on the right track. Well, if there are no more questions, um, I would like to thank again our panelists for today. Please join me in thanking them. And thank you for attending this afternoon. Have a good day. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. Follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.